This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Nothing had prepared the soldiers for the jungles, thick with foliage, deadly snakes and landmines. The enemy planted tripwires and waited in tunnels. No amount of technology seemed enough to gain an edge, so they relied on something else to find and alert them to hidden dangers. Dogs. Between four and 5,000 U.S. military canines served in the Vietnam War. The military accredits the dogs for saving at least 10,000 lives. For perspective, picture the Vietnam Memorial Wall, with its some 58,000 names etched in nearly 500 feet of marble standing 10 feet high at its peak. Now, imagine an additional 10,000 names. Dogs did what technology could not. In addition to sniffing out danger and weapon stashes, they doubled as trackers and sentry guards, and aided soldiers in taking down armed men. Dogs even smelled enemy soldiers' breath through reeds as they lay in wait beneath river waters. The canines endured the heat and enemy fire, but not for fame or money. They worked for the love and praise of their handlers. Most of the dogs bonded so tightly with the soldiers that they often stayed by their fallen bodies to their own detriment. Military canines were so good at their jobs that they became targets. Enemy forces earned rewards for a handler's service patch or a dog's tattooed ear. About 350 canines and 260 handlers were killed in action, but countless more were injured. On the morning of December 4th of 1966, 22-year-old airman Bob Thronberg smiled at Nemo, his German shepherd. You're a good boy, Thronberg told him. Back home, families prepared for the holidays, unaware that the base Thronberg and others were stationed at had been under assault from a barrage of mortar fire. Thronberg and Nemo set out on patrol among the chaos of medics and soldiers searching for the injured in piles of rubble. The thick heat was nearly unbearable for man and beast. Nemo trotted off ahead for several yards when he detected an armed man ahead of him. A Thronberg shot the enemy soldier. 
At 3 a.m., Nemo detected another Vietnamese guerrilla, and Thronberg sent Nemo after him. A gunfire erupted, hitting both Nemo and Thronberg. Though hurt, Nemo continued to fight while Thronberg called for backup. Thronberg managed to shoot the second guerrilla before collapsing, and Nemo returned to him. He whined as he lay across him, protecting him until backup arrived. Good boy, Thronberg said. When help arrived, Nemo cried as medics took Thronberg away. Both received medical treatment. Later, the two were reunited at the base hospital. It was a brief reunion. Thronberg was airlifted to Japan for further treatment. He never saw Nemo again. Thronberg recovered. He received the Purple Heart and the Bronze Star, though he credited Nemo as the hero that day. He and Nemo had taken out two enemy soldiers. All told, canine forces took out a dozen guerrillas that night. Nemo also recovered from his wounds, though he lost an eye. He was five years old when the military retired him. He received no medals, no awards. However, Nemo did receive something much rarer for canine soldiers. He was returned to the Department of Defense Dog Center, where he lived to be 11. Others were not as fortunate. When the U.S. left Vietnam, handlers wanted to bring their dogs home. Most were denied. The military euthanized some dogs and abandoned others. Only 200 of over 4,000 canines returned home. In the year 2000, President Clinton signed Robbie's Law, named after a brave canine that, like other dogs, fought in wars that were not theirs. With this law, the military could no longer consider dogs as equipment and euthanize them after their life of service. It also allowed their handlers to adopt them. Nemo and Robbie were very good dogs who saved lives, but they weren't the only ones. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. Their lineage dates back thousands of years. Part of the Spitz family of dogs, the Siberian Husky became an integral part of the Chukchi people's survival in the harsh Siberian landscape. During the day, the dogs pulled sleds. At night, they slept with their families and kept them warm. Inuit peoples also kept the dogs and took them when they migrated to the North American Arctic. Able to withstand temperatures most animals and other dogs cannot, the Siberian Husky made survival possible. Still, the breed remained unknown for those in the American West until the Alaskan Gold Rush of 1896. Sled dogs became essential, especially in remote Nome, Alaska. Just 160 miles south of the Arctic Circle, Nome winters are cold, dark, and isolated. In October of that year, the last supplies arrived by boat. In November, ice prevented ships from approaching the port, leaving residents on their own. Neither horse nor mule could make the journey along the Iditarod Trail during the long winter months. Gnome residents needed sled dogs to make the trip to larger towns for supplies. The dogs also helped pass the time. In the early 1900s, sled dog racing became a popular sport for Alaskan colonists. The driver, also known as a musher, rode a sled pulled by several dogs. The first all-Alaska sweepstakes race took place in 1907, by 1909, Norwegian-born Leonard Seppala had made a name for himself in racing and breeding the best sled dogs. In 1910, the winner set a course record with some of Seppala's smaller, scrappy dogs, bred mostly of stock from Siberia. But typically, a trip from Nanana, Alaska to Nome took 30 days. The fastest record set for a sled team took nine. 
And though airplanes replaced many sled dog teams in other Alaskan towns during the 1920s, in Nome, dogs were still a way of life for indigenous and European peoples alike, delivering mail, supplies, and traveling to shops and businesses. When the snow came and the ice settled, the people of Nome were on their own until the spring thaw. 1924 was particularly cold and harsh, and Nome's only doctor, Curtis Welsh, was uneasy. It started when a boy came in with labored breathing and a sore throat. Though Welsh did everything possible, the boy died the next day. Within days, other children arrived with the same symptoms. Soon, both young and old were coming down with the illness Welsh dreaded, diphtheria. Welsh had stockpiled what he thought the town might need, but he couldn't plan for everything. The disease can be fatal if not treated in time. A bacteria settles in the lungs where it produces toxins. Those toxins cause the death of respiratory tissue. As the dead tissue accumulates, the airway becomes clogged, making breathing difficult. Other complications involving the kidney and heart may also occur. Essentially, diphtheria kills by poisoning and asphyxiation. Children were most at risk, generally killing one in ten affected. Today, we have a vaccine that has all but eliminated the illness. However, back in the 1920s, the disease reached epidemic proportions. There was a cure, though, an antitoxin serum. To create it, horses were given increased levels of diphtheria toxins, to which they built up antitoxins. Then, laboratories made serum from the horse's blood. However, Nome didn't have laboratories or access to many horses, and though Dr. Welsh had some antitoxin on hand, it had expired. With no immunity to the disease, diphtheria spread through the town like wildfire. Without fresh antitoxin, Dr. Welsh estimated a 100% fatality rate based on the cases so far. He called an emergency meeting with Mayor George Maynard. The two quickly set up a quarantine as a temporary measure to slow down the spread of the disease while they put out a call for antitoxin. Fortunately, Anchorage had enough serum. Unfortunately, Anchorage was a thousand miles away. Time was running out for the people in Nome. The disease was highly contagious, and death often occurred just days after infection. Welsh and Maynard needed to find a way to get the serum, and quickly. Alaska's governor made it possible to transport the serum from Anchorage to Nanana by rail. The ice made delivering the serum the rest of the way by boat impossible. Planes had open cockpits and water-cooled engines at the time, making the trip by air a suicide mission. The town's survival came down to the sled dogs. But this time, they wouldn't have 30 days, or even nine, to make the trip. The call went out, asking for help from every sled team along the Idita Rod Trail from Nanana to Rome that have to set up relay teams between the two points to beat the clock. It wouldn't be easy. The teams would mostly be running in the dark. Daylight during Arctic winters is scarce. In addition, the serum had to be kept from freezing, a near-impossible feat considering it was January. And even if they managed to keep the serum stable, it had a shelf life of just six days, requiring the dogs to make the trip three days faster than the record run. They needed the best drivers and the fastest dogs. A ragtag group of natives and settlers signed up. Like their dogs, the men were healthy and fit, and all of them were young, except one, 42-year-old Leonard Seppala. Though he had the experience, his age put him past the prime for such a grueling undertaking. 
his lead dog, Togo, was also aging. At 12, the journey would likely kill him. But both man and dog had a vested stake in the matter. Sepalov had a young daughter and a solid commitment to the town. Togo had an equally strong commitment to Sepala, a devotion he'd had since he was a puppy. Sepala had taken a little longer to commit to such a bond. Togo had been born the only pup in the litter. His dark brown coat and piercing blue eyes might have stolen anyone else's heart, but Togo was small and initially unhealthy. And as far as Sepala was concerned, looks didn't get the job done, and he had little interest in the pup, so he gave Togo away. But Togo refused to belong to anyone else. He jumped through a window, and remarkably for such a young puppy, found his way home. Resigned to keeping Togo, Sepala put him in a pen when he took the other dogs out to train. Togo had other ideas. He dug under or climbed over every pen, and raced off to find Sepala and the team, often causing havoc when he did. Too young to harness, Sepala did his best to keep Togo from escaping, but nothing worked. Finally, when Togo was eight months old and had managed to escape and find the team again, Seppala harnessed him up with the rest of the team. That first day, Togo ran 75 miles. On break, Seppala continued moving Togo closer to the front. By the end of the day, he'd become the lead dog. In a short time, Seppala had the best lead dog he'd ever owned. Togo's stamina, intelligence, and devotion to Seppala became legendary in Nome. So... With so many lives in the balance, Seppala had to choose 20 of his best dogs for the journey. He had a younger dog named Balto, but felt the dog didn't have what it take to make the treacherous journey he'd been assigned. Seppala lent Balto to another musher. To make the best time, each team was assigned a 30-mile stretch. All except Seppala and Togo. The two would have to make an incredible 91-mile run over the trail's most hazardous terrain, they made their way to a cabin near the rendezvous point and waited. As the train pulled into Nanana, the weather worsened. A blinding snowstorm formed, and temperatures dropped to 60 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. While every driver knew they needed to be fast, they also knew that if they ran their dogs too fast, their lungs would frost and the dogs would die of exposure. The winds howled and the snow came down hard when Bill Shannon and his team pulled away from the train station. The Great Mercy Run had begun. Shannon ended up taking on 52 miles of the run in the worst of the weather. He arrived at the transfer point suffering from hypothermia, his face black with frostbite. Four of his dogs died. The temperature warmed slightly, though the next driver and team still encountered gale-force winds and blinding snow, and drivers and dogs persisted, handing off the serum to the next team. The driver who passed the serum to Seppala told him cases of diphtheria had risen and warned him that a storm was headed his way. Seppala got his team ready and set out in temperatures of negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit with a wind chill of negative 85. By the time they stopped for rest at a roadhouse, Togo had led the team 84 miles. The dogs were exhausted and they settled in for some rest. The winds kicked up outside, reminding Seppala they couldn't rest for long. With just six hours of sleep, they set out again, the storm raging around them. Sepala had a choice to make. If he took a shortcut, he'd save 42 miles. But that shortcut would take him and the team across the sound. 
In the past, other teams had risked the ice in poor weather, only to find themselves stranded on the ice, floating out to sea. And on a previous journey, the unthinkable had happened to them. When Seppala and the team had found themselves stranded on the ice, had unharnessed Togo and tossed him onto a larger block, hoping Togo understood what he needed him to do. Pull, Togo, pull! And Togo had. The ice Seppala and the team were stranded on drew close enough to drive the team across. Now Seppala had a decision. Take the long way and save himself and the team, but risk the serum expiring. Or risk their lives. Seppala looked at the team and met with Togo's ice-blue eyes. They'd done it before. They'd do it again. Togo and the team took off across the ice, sliding and skittering. They were now in a race for their lives, though they didn't know it. The storm had started to break up the ice on the Norton Sound. By the time Seppala heard the ice cracking around them, they couldn't turn around. He urged Togo to keep running, to keep moving the team forward so they wouldn't panic. Togo instinctively steered them away from the danger and led the team to shore. Once they were safely away from ice and firmly back on land, they found an Inuit igloo where Seppala fed the team and slept. The shortcut had saved them an entire day. They rested a few hours and set out again. Houses and rest stops dotted the snowdrifts along the way. A telegram had been sent to tell the drivers to stop at them frequently to rest and get warm, but Seppala never received the messages. He and Togo pushed on toward a ridgeline across the north summit of what's now called Denali Mountain. Seppala and Togo had experience on such trails, which was why they'd been selected to cross the mountain, but they'd never done it in weather like this. There were no trees to block the wind. The way up and down was steep, and the ridge was narrow. If they lost their footing, they'd perish. There were touch-and-go moments on their descent when the team slid down the mountain. Seppala relied on Togo to keep the team from danger or going too fast. By the time they made it to the rendezvous point, the team was exhausted, and 12-year-old Togo had given it everything he had left. Seppala handed off the serum to the next driver, Charlie Olson, on February 1st. After his run, Olsen handed off the serum to Gunnar Kassen, who had put Balto on his team. Kassen and Balto faced near-whiteout conditions. Balto helped keep the team on course until an 80-mile-an-hour wind toppled the sled, throwing Kassen, the dogs, and the serum into the snow. Kassen removed his gloves and frantically searched for the fur-wrapped package with his bare hands. He found it, righted the sled, and pushed on to the next meeting point where the last team would take the serum into town. Except they weren't there. There's controversy at this point in the history. Some say Kassen wanted to be the one to bring the serum into Nome. Others say that with the clock ticking and the storm raging, he couldn't afford to wait. Either way, Kassen pushed on, making it to Nome on February 2nd. A hero's welcome greeted him and the team, Kassen, exhausted and relieved, handed the serum to Dr. Welsh. He staggered to the front of the team, hugged Balto, and collapsed. Welsh administered the serum to the sick. No more cases were reported, and the town was saved. Welsh had enough to treat everyone who needed help with just two doses to spare. The drivers and their teams returned home again to rest and recover. The Great Mercy Run was over. They'd beaten the odds. 150 sled dogs made the run. They traveled 674 miles in five and a half days, shattering the old record of nine. A few of the dogs died, 
giving their lives to save human life, and Togo was not one of them. After a much-deserved rest, he and Sepla returned home. The Great Mercy Run had captivated the country. During those five and a half days, people everywhere anxiously awaited reports on the dog's journey. Newspapers splashed updates on the front page. Radio stations gave them by the hour. Americans were on the edge of their seats when the New York Times reported that a major blizzard struck as the dogs approached Nome. And celebrations erupted when the serum made it and the town was saved. President Calvin Coolidge presented every musher with the letter of recognition. Even the Senate took notice, stopping their work long enough to honor the men and their dogs who had braved horrendous conditions to save the lives of thousands of people. People couldn't get enough of the story, and though 20 men and 150 dogs had participated, one stood out above all others. Balto. Gunnar Kasson and Balto had been the ones to arrive in Nome with the serum. Seppala knew the team that made the trip into town would be the most celebrated. He didn't care so much for himself, but he did for Togo. Balto was a great dog, all the dogs were, but it had been 12-year-old Togo who had taken on the roughest, most dangerous terrain. A six-year-old Balto ran an incredible 53 miles. At twice his age, Togo had traveled 261 miles, over a third of the 674-mile run. It had been Togo that traveled the ridgeline and across the ice. And Seppala's decision to go across the sound saved an entire day. Had he chosen the initial path, the serum would have expired. Books, movies, magazines, and papers wanted to hear Balto's story, though. Balto symbolized the race. He and Kasson toured the states. Balto was president at the unveiling of his statue in New York's Central Park. But after a while, Kasson grew homesick. Balto and the other dogs weren't with him when he finally returned to Alaska. It's unclear why. But poor Balto and the team were shipped across the country as part of the vaudeville circuit, until George Kimball, who was organizing a children's campaign, came across the heroic canine at a sideshow. Balto and the other dogs had been chained, living in deplorable conditions. Kimball rescued the dogs and found them a permanent home at the Cleveland Zoo. Balto lived the rest of his life there until he died in 1933. Togo and Sepala toured for a while as well, they even went back to sled racing in Maine and easily bested the local dogs. But Togo was growing older, and Seppala retired him, agreeing to a breeding program in Maine. Togo sired many litters. Seppala reached his dream of the perfect sled dog, separate from Siberian Huskies. Togo's line became a separate breed, the Seppala Siberian. Seppala returned to Alaska, but continued to visit his beloved dog. Togo passed away a few years later, at the age of 16. He died having lived his retirement in comfort, well cared for, and deeply loved. Leonard Seppala died in 1967, at the age of 89. Seppala said he had never had a dog with more intelligence, courage, stamina, or loyalty than Togo. But his story and heroism faded from history. Decades later, historians uncovered the story and helped shine a light on Togo as the true hero. In 2019, a Seppala Siberian named Diesel portrayed Togo in Disney's adaptation of The Serum Run. As it turns out, Diesel was an easy choice for the studio. He not only resembled Togo, but he was also his great-grandson, 14 generations back. 
There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. I'm late. I'm late. Three very important dates. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Working dogs are a relatively common sight, either trained as police dogs or to aid people with disabilities or illnesses. Dogs truly have become humankind's best friend. And in September of 2001, America became familiar with two other types of working dogs— search and rescue, and search and recovery. After the attack on the Twin Towers on September 11th, 300 dogs and their handlers converged on Ground Zero. Search and rescue dogs have been used for decades, from locating people lost in snowstorms in the wilderness to national disasters like Hurricane Katrina and incidents like the Oklahoma City bombing. Still, few Americans knew the scope of what it meant to be a dog or handler for search and rescue. But at Ground Zero, People glued to their televisions had never seen anything like it. After the horror of watching the buildings collapse, people falling from buildings and running soot-covered through the streets, others ran toward the buildings. And in the aftermath, rescue workers continued to shift through the rubble in the hopes of finding human life. Dogs climbed over concrete, glass, and unstable debris to detect life below. 27 hours after the buildings had collapsed, a rescue dog found the last survivor. Days later, the search and rescue teams made way for dogs trained in search and recovery. The search proved difficult for the cadaver dogs. As it turns out, finding body after body is psychologically taxing for them, too. And to combat the dog's depression, handlers created mock finds, so the dogs found some living people. Denise Corliss was one of those handlers. Corliss, a volunteer firefighter with the Sci-Fair Fire Department in Texas, arrived with two-year-old Brittany, a golden retriever. Corliss had been training with Brittany since the pup was just eight months old. The pair had completed FEMA certification. 9-11 was Brittany's first assignment. While Brittany took her job seriously, sniffing through and climbing over rubble for 12 hours a day for nearly two solid weeks, she had a softer side, too. Finding so many bodies took its toll on the rescue workers, and Brittany, also discouraged, sought out firefighters who just needed a hug and a wet nose. Soon, rescue workers sought out Brittany for one of her famous golden smiles and a quick hug. The firefighters began to share stories with Corliss. In the debris were missing friends and co-workers. 
that Brittany not only served as a recovery dog, but she'd also become a therapy dog. After 9-11, Corliss and Brittany went on to other assignments, Hurricanes Rita, Ivan, and Katrina, but Brittany did precisely what she had been trained to do, despite the dangers. Once, Brittany found herself standing precariously on a dangling staircase. Injury and death are real possibilities for the dogs. A Corliss admitted to a reporter that she held her breath on many occasions while Brittany worked. Life as a search and rescue or search and recovery dog is hard and demanding. Brittany retired at age nine, though she remained active. She visited the Cyfair Firehouse regularly, where she continued to bring her golden smile and warmth to the firefighters. She made television appearances, and she enjoyed going to elementary schools, where she listened patiently and without judgment as children practiced their reading skills with her. But as anyone with a dog knows all too well, their lives are too short. And when Brittany's kidneys failed and nothing more could be done, Corliss honored her beloved dog with dignity, choosing to be with her when the veterinarian euthanized her. When word got out about 9-11's last surviving search and recovery dog, firefighters and first responders lined up outside the clinic. They stood at attention and saluted Brittany as Corliss led her inside. Tired and in pain, Brittany managed to wag her tail. Then they waited. When Corliss reappeared with Brittany's body, draped with an American flag, they saluted her one final time. Heroic dogs are indeed special, but dog lovers also know that 19th century humorist Josh Billings had it right when he said, a dog is the only thing on earth that loves you more than he loves himself. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimAndMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm late. I'm late for the important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com you deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. If tonight's movie night is just what you need, make it special with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. 
take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Need an easy button to feed your baby? Baby Bretza's Formula Pro Advanced makes a perfectly mixed warm formula bottle automatically at the push of a button. No air bubbles, no fuss. Literally, choose your temp, select your ounces, push start, and you're done. Works with virtually all formulas and bottles. Say goodbye to the 3 a.m. feeding chaos and hello to this revolutionary stress-free solution. Raising a baby is hard enough. Let Baby Bretza make feeding a breeze. Get your Formula Pro Advanced at babybretza.com.